Let's pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing, O Lord, in your sight. Amen. So we've been with the prophets now for almost a month. If I had my way, we would do prophets for all of Advent. But we're going to switch to the Gospel of Luke and we'll get our Christmas stories. So let's spend a bit of time with Isaiah before we switch gears. It's helpful to remember what the role of a prophet truly is. Frederick Buechner wrote that the title prophet means spokesperson, not fortune teller. And the one whom in their unfathomable audacity the prophets claimed to speak for was God. In the presence of a prophet, no one was ever comfortable. I like how you said, David, it seemed a little intense or a little much. It was a little over the top. That's what it's like being around the prophets. With a complete lack of tact, they roared out against phoniness and corruption wherever they found it in society. They were the terror of kings. Temple leaders and other officials who ruled over the people did not enjoy the presence of a prophet among them. Again, to quote Buechner, a prophet's quarrel with the world is deep down a lover's quarrel. If they didn't love the world, they probably wouldn't bother to tell it that it's going to hell. They'd just let it go. Their quarrel is God's quarrel, end quote. And yes, we absolutely do still have prophets among us today. Monarchs, empires, and bullies of all shapes and sizes have found themselves facing one speaking truth to power in their midst. Last week, Hosea was God's spokesperson, and he presented to us a God who felt like the frustrated and heartbroken parent of a wayward child, the child whose idolatry and greed and injustice for his own benefit was deserving of punishment. It had overtones of the prodigal son. But God's righteous fury was overwhelmed by a churning heart, a heart of love for the prodigal child. And though God refused to lift a divine hand against Israel, it didn't mean that happy days were ahead for the people, because they still had to face the consequences of their own actions. Assyria would obliterate them. In the south, in the southern kingdom, the prophet Isaiah, like his northern counterpart, was speaking on God's behalf to the wayward kingdom of Judah. But this time, God wasn't presenting as a frustrated parent. This time, God was the angry owner of a mismanaged vineyard. Let's look again at our reading from chapter 5, because I want to give Isaiah props for his creativity here. He's quite cunning. You see, he draws his listeners in by parodying a love song. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. This technique of, of using song, it's old as time. Using music as a vehicle for social critique. Consider John Lennon's Give Peace a Chance, or in my era, Rage Against Machines, Killing in the Name of. Music has often been used to communicate resistance and challenge to a sin-sick world. Isaiah is clever. 
Let me sing for my beloved a love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. But then he hits us with a two by four. He expected it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. God's frustrated at having expected one thing, but seeing another. Verses 2, 4, and 7. To expect is to live in hope or anticipation of a future outcome. Now in Hebrew, the verbs for expect and hope are closely related, which is why you'll often hear some of these verses used during the season of Advent. The vintner worked hard to create the right conditions for his love vineyard, for what is later called a garden of delight. He did everything right. He planted expensive vines of Cabernet, Zinfandel, Merlot, and Chardonnay grapes. So far as he knew, everything was on track. He did everything by the book. Grapes even grew, and they looked like the genuine article. The vines seemed to flourish. Finally, the harvest came, but the only grapes he could find were sour, stinky, and worthless. Mm, what else could I have done? The man cries out in despair. What more could I have provided? The conditions for a bumper crop of delicious grapes were all there, so why am I looking at wild grapes? Why am I tasting sour grapes? There's nothing left for the entire project now but to start over. So in a kind of fury, fueled by heartbreak, the vintner declares the destruction of all he had labored so hard to build. And just in case anyone has missed the point of this chapter's first six verses, the voice of the prophet bursts onto the scene in verse 7 to make it painfully clear who the vineyard is. The vineyard is Israel, and she's done for. But that's not all that verse 7 clarifies. Through the clever use of wordplay, Isaiah makes clear why it was that in the end Yahweh regarded the Israelites as a bunch of stinkers, essentially. In verse 7, Isaiah said that the good, juicy grapes that the Lord wanted were justice and righteousness. And instead, what God discovered was the exact opposite. Instead of justice, God found bloodshed. Instead of righteousness, God found the cries of the oppressed. In one of the most celebrated word plays in biblical poetry, the Hebrew words for justice and righteousness, I have a slide for this actually to show it. Can you find it? It's a blue one. Hey, look at that. The Hebrew, and I am a Greek scholar, so I will butcher this and I am sorry, but I find it fascinating. The Hebrew words for justice and righteousness, mishpat and sedaka while the words for bloodshed and cry are mispak and teka. They're very close. The differences are really only about one letter apart. It's difficult to recreate the wordplay in another language, but the Jewish Publication Society translation actually captures something to this effect. They write, he hoped for justice, but behold, injustice, for equity, but behold, 
iniquity. So that almost captures the wordplay, like how close the words sound. They look and sound the same, but their meanings are exceedingly different. So in English, there's another one I did. So in English, there we go. Uh, pitcher and pitcher, right? On the left, they sound the same, very different. Wither, like where are you going? Or wither, like a plant. These are word plays and puns we completely miss out on in the English language, and they're brilliant and powerful uh, to the original audience. And they're also sometimes used for humorous effect, both in scripture and in our own language when we speak to one another. Consider Winston Churchill, if you want to, commenting on what he regarded as the roaringly boring speeches of diplomat John Foster Dulles. Once... Uh, Winston once said that his speeches were dull, duller, and dullest. I think that's great. But there's nothing funny about the wordplay in verse 7, even though we have now played with it a little bit. So why did Isaiah use wordplay like this in such a serious moment? Well, perhaps to convey that when it comes to justice and righteousness, it's not funny and close isn't good enough. It didn't matter that the grapes on Israel's vine looked from a distance like the kind of grapes that God desired. When the rubber hit the road, they were far from what was supposed to be the harvest. Israel had a form of justice. From a distance, everything looked all right, but it was justice for the few, for the wealthy, for the lucky, for the winners of society. Meanwhile, most of what the upper crust had was ill-gotten gain. It was built upon the shed blood of the poor. Some of the people looked very righteous. They looked very pious. They went to the temple. They observed the Sabbath. They prayed now and again. Yet their ears were deaf to the cries of distress, which God's ears picked out very easily. Instead of being the locus of justice, the temple became a shelter for the elite whose walls were used to keep them from hearing the cries of the needy. Oh Lord, do not let our churches become this situation. Do not let us become a vineyard of sour grapes. Throughout the Old Testament, it is clear that justice involved way more than just punitive action. It was more than just criminals getting punished. Crimes carried punishment in ancient Israel, of course, but that negative aspect of justice was not nearly as vital as the positive aspect. Justice was mostly a way to prevent crimes from happening. Justice was fundamentally about social reform and restoration, which, if enacted correctly, rendered crime a far less likely occurrence. When people are cared for well, and they do not fall through the cracks, the widow, the orphan, the newcomer or foreigner, then the conditions that create need and opportunity for crime are significantly diminished. This refrain, this trio, this group, the widow, the orphan, the foreigner, the widow, the orphan, the foreigner, represented the underdogs of society, the marginalized who could so easily be exploited. Justice in the Old Testament and, by the way, the Old Testament carries 86% of all the Bible's references to justice. 
Justice in the Hebrew scriptures or the Old Testament was more about caring for the needy than punishing the wicked. Please. The matters of justice in our holy scriptures, almost 90% of the occurrences were more about caring for the needy and one another and loving each other with compassion. It was more so about that than about punishing the wicked. Today, we tend to restrict justice to matters related to the legal system, and we prop up things like the prison industrial complex. Judges today are people in black robes who get involved only after laws have been broken. But the biblical judges were not people who doled out verdicts from a bench, but were champions of justice within the community who proclaimed and pursued the righteous things of God. Oh, how far we've fallen from what God's in original intent for justice was. But the day finally came in Israel when there were no such champions. And so the Jubilee year was ignored. Farmers greedily picked up every last speck of grain from their fields, leaving nothing behind for the poor to glean. People who fell into debt did not see their debts canceled or their mortgaged property returned eventually as God's law demanded. Precisely what God did not want to see in Israel happened anyway. There developed a permanent underclass of widows and orphans and immigrants. The people who allowed all of that to happen were the real sour grapes, the real stinkers in Israel who break God's heart in Isaiah 5. And so the result in that chapter is the pulling back of the divine vine dresser. In came the empires of Assyria and eventually Babylon. It would be so tragic. It would be so tragic if that was the end of the story. But we know from last week, God, like a divine parent, doesn't stay angry. God, like the heavenly lover, beloved, and love itself, has a heart that churns with compassion. And so the story doesn't end with destruction. In Isaiah 11, we see the agricultural language return. We look out, we cast our eyes over all that has been destroyed. And we look over at that stump over there. It is charred, it is dried out, dead. Or is it? The stump of Jesse, the one to whom the judge and prophet Samuel was sent to anoint the next great king, to anoint the youngest of Jesse's boys, David, the shepherd, David who slew Goliath. From the stump of Jesse, not from David, from Jesse comes a shoot, a new thing. From a dried out, cut off stump, deep, deep roots under the ground. All we see with our eyes is death. All that's happening underground is life. New life coming from death. The growing edge, Howard Thurman said. He writes, all around us worlds are dying and new worlds are being born. All around us, life is dying and life is being born. The fruit ripens on the tree. The roots are silently at work in the darkness of the earth against a time when there shall be new lives, fresh blossoms, green fruit. Such is the growing edge. 
It is the extra breath from the exhausted lung. You know that one. It's the one more thing to try when all else has failed. I've been there recently myself. It's the upward reach of life when weariness closes in upon all endeavor. This is the basis of hope in moments of despair, the incentive to carry on when times are out of joint and people have lost their reason. The source of confidence when worlds crash and dreams whiten to ash. The birth of a child. Life's most dramatic answer to death. This is the growing edge incarnate. Look well, he writes, to the growing edge. Christ the King Sunday, or Reign of Christ Sunday, stands in between of all the stories that have been and links us to the stories that are yet to be. The one who comes shows us what real justice and righteousness looks like, as fragile as a shoot coming from the stump, but enough to grow into a tree of life for the whole of the world and every nation. As we stand on the cusp of Advent, waiting for the Messiah to be born, we wait still in our lives and in our churches today. And we still find around ourselves death and pain and exhaustion and weariness. And yet a shoot comes from the stump of a tree that looked so dead. This morning on Christ the King Sunday, we celebrate baptism. When churches around us are crying out to keep their doors open, we're giving up the ghost and closing. Here at Knox Oakville, we're celebrating baptism. God is still very much at work. God is still bringing newness into a world that seems tinged with death. And so as we prepare to celebrate together the sacrament of baptism today, let us remember who it is we serve, whose kingdom it is that we serve as we celebrate, and we rejoice, and we give thanks. Thanks be to God. Amen.